previously on Fun Science Fiction. In case yes, I see the picture behind your head. <laughs> Hi, this is Art Bell, and welcome to the Funny Science Fiction Podcast. The podcast where movie fans miss the futuristic special effects of claymation come and complain. So our guest today is the founder of the Comedy Central Network. We're very excited to have a few moments to catch up with Art Bell. Welcome to the show, Art. Hey, thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah. Great to be here. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're very glad to have you. We, you and I have been uh, talking back and forth a little bit uh, through emails, and so it's good to have a chance to sit here face-to-face uh, and catch up with you. So um, one of the, to set the tone for our listeners, uh, because we are a sci-fi podcast, we'd like to talk to you about your sci-fi interest and kind of where, you know, where you are with this and, and things. So could you tell us what your sci- favorite sci-fi shows and movies are and what really piqued your interest into science fiction? Well, I'll tell you what piqued my interest in science fiction was Isaac Asimov. Okay. Uh, followed closely by Ray Bradbury. I mean, I was addicted to those guys as a kid. I read everything they wrote. I thought iRobot was a work of genius. I still do. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, you know, I was kind of a nerd as a kid. So I read a lot. And, and that's where that started. I, I did also grow up on a steady diet of 1950s sci-fi films, you know, um, all the UFO films and uh, sure. the black and white um, sci-fi films that were really kind of badly disguised criticisms of communism and <laughs> the communist right. threat in America, <laughs> you know, invasion of the body snatchers and all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I, I kind of cut my teeth on that. And of course, it was Star Trek. I was, I was, you know, I was in seventh grade when Star Trek was on. So, and that was like the coolest show ever. It wasn't on for too many years, though. A couple of years, right? First, um, and again, you know, sci-fi was uh, was really a big part of my life. I also, I, and this may sound odd, because I liked science. Is okay. that is that like an unusual combination? I haven't. I'm no, I don't really, think so. Yeah, I thought science was really cool, and I I actually briefly considered becoming a scientist. And so I kept my eye on, on sci-fi um, when, when, you know, when I was younger. I read Dune. That was a big, big one for me. They, did that movie come out yet? The new one? No, not yet. Yeah, I figured I, I would have heard later about this it. this year? Yeah, I think uh, late 2021 it's supposed to come out. I think it's supposed to be a Christmas release. Yeah, well, I hope it's good. The first one kind of crashed and burned. <laughs> I think I ended my love affair with sci-fi that moment. But, you know, hopefully. Yeah, you're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> current sci-fi is a little harder to define you know my kids are constantly putting me in touch with some sci-fi stuff but um i i honestly can't tell you what it is because a lot of times i i just it, it's not stuff i i like and i end up going back and reading some of the older stuff i mean i just love ray bradbury i thought he's such a great writer um, okay is that so is no, that's, right? that's, okay. that's a great answer. Okay. So let me ask you this uh, as a follow-up to what you just said. So you, you read Isomob and Bradbury. You were, you were a fan of, of the 50s movies. And of course, uh, you've mentioned iRobot. So my question for you is, what are your thoughts on the movie adaptation of, I, of iRobot? Did you watch that with Will Smith? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, honestly, I saw it such a long time ago now. When was that made? Like six or seven years ago? Well, I think a little longer, actually. I think it was, I want to say it was around 2010. Yeah, 2010. I honestly don't remember much about it. I remember thinking it was okay. 
you know, older honestly, than that. I, I realize that's not much of an answer for you, but I just don't remember much about it. Fair enough. It was released okay. in 2004. Was it 2004? 2004. 2004. Oh, man. I know. Okay. So you know what? I'm going to ask you. Is it fair to ask me about what I thought of a movie 16 years ago? Yes. <laughs> can we okay. not be okay with 2004 <laughs> okay. being 16 right. years ago? That was. Well, I'll, I can, so I'm going to ask you. You know what you thought about uh, movies that were released in 1977, like Star Wars. So you know. I'm yeah, well, you can that. do that. You could do that. But I was more impressionable then. You know, I was probably <laughs> multitasking when I saw iRobot on TV doing you know a number of things, taking care of the kids, watching, you know, watching uh, other stuff. You know how it, it all kind of fell apart. I understand. And I'm having a hard time at the moment struggling to think that iRobot is older than my youngest child. So <laughs> that scares Yikes. me. That's... Uh, uh, time, flies. Okay. time flies, especially when you're a parent. Yes, it does. That is oh, that is absolutely true. All right. So, yeah, so that's a, that's a nice uh, uh, broad base there that you have for, for sci-fi. Excellent. Yeah. So your, your website, your biography on your website also mentions that you did a little bit of musical theater. That you were Motel, Motel the Taylor in Fiddler on the Roof in college. Motel the Taylor, yes, that was my that was my big starring role. Which is awesome. I mean, I'm a huge musical theater fan. Tim's not, but no. we'll get to the things that are wrong with Tim later. <laughs> but is that was that like a, a one off thing? Was that your only interest in musical theater, or is that still something that you you go back to? Well, it, it was my first real experience being in a musical where I had to sing and dance. Mm -hmm. I was always interested in theater and I did some theater and performing and sketch comedy and stuff in college, not too much in high school, but in college, I really got into it. And amazingly enough in graduate school, uh, I went to Wharton grad, which is a business school. They had something called the Wharton follies. And I know you're all excited about hearing about this, but the Wharton Follies was a satirical musical comedy put on by the students. Now, that may not sound too good, but when I went to the first meeting, what I found was a lot of people from Harvard Lampoon, a lot of people who were professional choreographers and musicians and actors wanted to get the hell out of the entertainment business and onto Wall Street. Now, I was trying to go the other way. I was trying to get into the entertainment business. Right. But there we were passing like ships in the night. And we put on a hell of a show. We were, you know, they actually put us on the, the Today Show in the first year because we were notable. I'll, I'll leave it at that. And the second year I wrote the show and it reminded me of how, how much I enjoyed writing comedy. Um, but to see me dance in any of these shows was really not worth the price of the ticket. <laughs> I, was, I was a pretty good singer. I have to say, Mono Taylor had to sing Wonder of Wonder, Miracle of Miracles. And I won't sing it for you, but you know the song, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's very famous. And it's a solo. And there was a 35 or whatever it was piece orchestra in front of me. That was the, just the coolest thing <laughs> that I could ever imagine. And I had to take singing lessons. I mean, when, I, when they cast me, they said, can you sing? And I said, no. Can you dance? No. I can act, I said. And they said, well, we're going to teach you how to sing and dance. And they gave me singing lessons. And I learned how to sing and I forgot everything, but I did actually pull off the solo and I uh, really enjoyed it. And see, now I'm just wondering if there's video of you dancing somewhere. There is, but I'll be back. I'm, I'll, I'll be, uh, I'll be <laughs> off to Google. I'll be right back. <laughs> back row. I was in the back row. Always, oh, by okay. Way. Well hidden then. Very good. <laughs> So we're always exploring the humor of things and what people like to find funny. So what are some effective ways to inject humor 
whether it's in writing or in like a TV show without destroying the pace of the story? Well, you can make a joke about death. And I think that's, um, you know, because everybody thinks about death a lot. And I find that it's disarming, but people like to laugh at things, uh, uh, jokes about death or, you know, comic discussions about death. And again, I got my inspiration on that from National Lampoon. They did the death issue. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was an mm-hmm. entire yes. issue. And it was so unbelievably off the wall funny that I came to realize that death is really a great source of humor. Uh, and I think it's because everybody's just scared to death of death. <laughs> Nobody wants to die. And right. people like you who are, you know, um, shockingly young, don't even think about death. Whereas people like me, you know, comes up more often. And then people who are in their nineties, it's like probably a preoccupation. So I, I will tell you, you want to hear a story about death and comedy? Yeah, sure. Okay. So I had to come up with the first, I, you know, I, I, I was at comedy central and we needed a tagline. So I had to come up with a tagline. I hired a guy named Danny Abelson who interestingly worked at, at national lampoon. And he came back with a tagline and he explained it to me, said, you know, listen, the most important things in life are, and I said, money he said, no. And then he went on and he said, it's about, you know, the most important thing in life is we live and then we die. And that's really hard, but we, we can think about it. And I said, all right, what's the tagline? He said, the tagline is we're all going to die. Watch comedy central. And I thought that was the greatest tagline for us in the world. And I'll tell you why, because I called my brother who was 26 at the time. And I said, Hey, Larry, what do you think of this tagline? He started cracking up, right? He says, that's a great tagline. <laughs> then I called my father. And I said, Hey dad, we just, you know, we came up with this new tagline for the channel. I told him the tagline. My father says, you can't say that. That's not funny. Now the whole idea of comedy central is we were trying to appeal to guys like my brother, not guys like my father for all kinds of reasons. Cause we were sure. young, edgy comedy. So there you go. Problem solved. <laughs> and uh, that was our first, our first tagline. Nice. Nice. All right. So let's, let's talk about Comedy Central because, you know, that's, you know, what you're writing your book about. We'll get to that in in just a moment, but let's talk about how you began the network. So what was the impetus behind starting this new broadcast network? Because I believe you were working at HBO at the time when you got started. Um, And what are some of your favorite memories from that time period? Well, the impetus for starting the channel was my love, my love of comedy. Uh, and I talked about my love of science fiction and all the stuff I read about that. But mm-hmm. I had a similar love if, uh, for comedy that started when I started watching the Ed Sullivan show, a weekly variety show with the great mm-hmm. Borscht Belt comics on. I saw Richard Pryor in his first appearance. I think I was nine when he first appeared. Thought he was the funniest guy in the world because he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that comedy was very powerful. It's a very powerful way to communicate. And I wanted to, I wanted to get good at it or at least understand it. So I started, you know, really becoming a student of comedy, comedy nerd, we call it these days, and um, watched a lot of comedy, listened to the albums, Robert Klein, Bill Cosby. I know you can't mention his name in Polite Company, but Bill Cosby's album was a bestseller. Very funny. Well, sure, back in that day, yeah. Yeah, and George Carlin. Those were the things we were listening to over and over and over uh, as kids. Um, and the more I got into it, the more I found I loved comedy. I was a little bit of a class clown, got thrown out of class a lot. 
Um, but by the time I got to high school, I discovered satire and writing comedy. And I found I was, I was not only pretty good at it, but I enjoyed it and studied Swift and the modest proposal where he suggested that starving people eat the kids because that would solve the problem. And, and, you know, I realized that Swift had done that essay and gotten in big trouble for it uh, when he did it, uh, Jonathan Swift. And he, um, but he made a huge impact. And I realized, again, comedy, satire can make a huge impact in society. And, you know, that was, began my love affair with comedy. All, right. All I can think about is chocolate cake. <laughs> what? <laughs> chocolate cake. Chocolate cake. Yep. Was the, Cosby the Cosby line about chocolate. Yep. Yeah, oh, dad cho- is good. Dad oh. is good. Dad is great. Dad gives us chocolate cake. See, yeah, but you so start talking about stuff. comedy and chocolate cake, and then I think about fluffy and chocolate cake. Well, yeah, there's that Gabriel Glacius and what he's been, aka Fluffy. Yeah, he's got because that. Because I chocolate. have had the chocolate cake shake from Portillo's, and it is amazing. I have not yet. I keep saying I'm going to. There's supposed but, to be a Portillo's coming to Michigan, but that's. But then again, thing. there's that's in Chicago and away from where I live. All right. So, what are some of your favorite memories, though, about that time period and starting yeah. off with the network? When when I when I went to HBO there were a handful of cable channels and HBO, by the way, was the coolest place to work in those days in television. They were kind of like Netflix today. Okay. They were, they were like the first on the block. They were showing uncut movies, uncut comedy, uncensored. Uh, They were going to change television. And it was a pretty small company. It was like a thousand people. And I got there because I knew finance and economics. Yes, that's true. My first job there was in the finance department um, doing economic uh, modeling to just, determine how many subscribers they were going to have, which is not what I wanted to do in the entertainment business, but there I was. So ultimately I had had this job. um, I'm sorry. I had this idea for a comedy network for a long time since business school, really, when I wrote that comedy show, I said, Hey, why isn't there an all comedy network? There's all music. There's all sports. Mm -hmm. There's all everything. No, all comedy network. What's up with that? So I decided to pitch it to the head of HBO programming. Now, at that time, she was about 15 levels above me in the organization. I was just a punk financial kid and knew nothing about programming or anything else. And but it was a small company. and I made an appointment with her. I said, you know, I want to have a meeting to pitch or something. And the secretary said, fine. So I go down there. I say her name was Bridget Potter. I say, Bridget, I think HBO should do an all comedy channel, 24 hours a day, seven days a week comedy. She said, stop right there. That is the worst idea I've ever had heard. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> because we got plenty of comedy on TV already. We don't need more. And who's going to sit around and watch 24 hours of comedy? Nobody. And are you really going to get any decent comedians to go on an all comedy channel like Robin Williams? Whoopi is not going on a channel. Billy Crystal is not going on the channel. The managers would die before they let them on the channel. So no, you don't. And then she finished with, you don't know anything about comedy and you don't know much about television, but thanks for stopping by. And oh, I wow. Left. Yeah. Okay. It was, a, it was a lot of cold water that I've thrown on my idea that I've been nurturing for a few years. Yeah, yeah I bet. So I, by the time I got to the elevator though, I, I figured she was wrong. I, I just knew she was wrong. I knew somebody was going to start it, you know, and. Uh, right. So why not you? So why not us, right? So I went back to my office and started working on a write-up for the thing because I figured, hey, the heck with it. HBO's not going to do it. I'm going to find another job. Then they'll be sorry. So <laughs> I started writing 
that's kind of a silly way to put it. I'll but, show them. <laughs> I'll show them. I'll kind of come back with the best comedy channel ever. And then they'll go. be sorry. Anyway, so I started writing it up and uh, over the course of a few weeks. And I was going to staple it to my resume, honestly, and send it out to Viacom and Paramount and all the other places, see if they wanted to do it and give me a job. I was young and had no reputation in the business. So I, what did I care, right? Right. So, Along the way, as luck would have it, my boss's boss was walking by my office. He said, what are you working on? I said, this idea for a new channel I have, you know. He says, well, let me see. So he looked at it. He goes, wow, this is great. I said, really? He said, yeah. He says, I think Michael Fuchs, the chairman of HBO, should see this right now. I said, right now? He said, yeah, come on, let's go. We're going to his office. I had no presentation materials. I had no idea what, was, what I was going to say. And by the way, Michael Fuchs had just been named two weeks earlier as the most powerful man in Hollywood by the New York Times Magazine in a cover story. So no pressure. No pressure. I mean, if I got in the, if I got in the <laughs> elevator with Michael Fuchs accidentally on my way to work, I'd break into a sweat. This guy could destroy your career, probably have you killed, you know, with no trouble at all. I was afraid of him. And we were about to walk into his office with no appointment. And that's what we did. And Michael looked up and said, the hell are you guys doing here? That's really what he said. <laughs> Without an appointment, which was unsaid, but that's what he meant. Um, and my boss's boss, name was Larry. Larry said, uh, Art has an idea. I think you ought to hear it. So I pitched my idea. I pitched my little heart out. Gave him the whole vision that someday this thing will be the center of the comedy universe. And, and uh, HBO really has an opportunity here. And, and he bought it. He said, you know what? We should, we should see if that'll work. Let's do some tests. Let's make a demo tape. Let's do some research, do the finances. Boom. And cool. that's how we get started. All right, cool. So talking about the, the success from your career, going from HBO to Comedy Central, like you were just talking about. Obviously, since you were turned down the first time you mentioned it, not every idea is a success. So how do you deal with the failure? And do you have sage advice because of your years of experience? Do you have sage advice for people who are struggling with those feelings of failures outweighing their successes currently? Yes. Um, the way I did it and the way I recommend other people do it is you have to look for, even in failure, there's, there's, there's little glimmers of hope and success somewhere. You know, I always point out that whatever your job is, is going to be useful to you in your next job, whether it's good, bad, whether you succeed or fail, you're going to pick up stuff that's useful and either getting your next job or doing your next job. And that's the way it works. So there's that hope right off the, right off the bat with me. And you, you talk about comedy central as if it were a success, you know, the name of my book, it's a memoir called constant comedy, how I started comedy central and lost my sense of humor. Now, the reason I subtitled it that is because people think that Comedy Central has always been successful. You know, wow, it's a, it's a big, successful channel. It's really great. We were the worst, most horrible, disastrous failure in the first year. It was just, I can't explain to you how embarrassed Michael Fuchs was about the whole thing and how bad it was. And the press creamed us. And they said, we weren't funny. We were the gong channel. We were Michael Fuchs flat on his face, you know, I mean, on and on. And I had started the whole thing. Now, how do you think I felt? Mm. Bad. If you're thinking bad, you got that right. I felt bad and I felt responsible, but 
I looked for little glimmers of hope and success. And the first little glimmer of hope and success was Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mm. And that's probably something that's familiar to a lot of your audience. Very much so. That, that came in the mail before we launched. I kid you not. The head writer who was named Eddie Gordetsky said, he came in one day, he said, hey, we, we got to have a, we got to have a, that's how he talked. We got to have a show where comedians watch movies and make jokes. <laughs> and we said, yeah, that's, that's a good idea, Eddie. So Eddie went off and started developing that show. And then a week later, literally um, in the mail, we get a cassette and there's a letter with it. And we said, it said, hey, we hear you guys are starting the comedy channel. Is this something you, that would interest you? And it was Mystery Science Theater 3000, the tape. They'd been producing it at this like UHF station in Minneapolis. We flew out there immediately. I mean, this was like a dream come true. But, you know, at that moment, I thought, okay, win, lose, or draw. One of the hopes for a comedy network was that innovative comedy would come to us. And there it was before we even launched. This show would never have made the air without a comedy network in the world. It would never have been on NBC or HBO or any of those channels. Just mm -hmm. wouldn't have. And it would have been lost. But there we were. So that was my glimmer of hope then. Nice. Excellent. So we like to look for suggestions about different types of recreation and fun. Uh, so like, how do you keep yourself recharged and your creative mind focused? Well, I, music has been sort of a constant through my life. I, my mother was a piano teacher. We were required to play piano before we did anything else, including eat. Um, before we played, uh, before we watched television, we had to practice. I had two brothers. It was, it was a horrible thing. It was abuse, but that's, that's how we grew up. And I, I learned to love piano. I grew up on classical piano, but when I got to New York city, I decided I didn't want to play jazz. So in my twenties, I learned how to play jazz piano, which, you know, talk about keeping you on your toes. Jazz piano is very difficult, especially after classical. And then when I was about when I was much older, I won't mention the age, but it was <laughs> 10 or so years ago. I don't want to scare anybody. Um, I took up jazz drums for the same reason. I just said, man, wow, jazz. It's cool. What are those drummers doing? I can't, I can't even figure it out. Right. But I noticed that the drummers were always the guys playing and dancing. You know, they were always moving and dancing. They looked like they were having the best time. You know, Miles Davis, he didn't look like he was having such a great time. I wanted to be a drummer. So I learned how to play jazz drums. And I, I love that. And talk about diverting. You can't be thinking about too much else while you're playing piano or drums. You just can't. Mm -hmm. It's right. really, it's really focused. It really focuses you. <laughs> the other thing is I, you know, I like skiing. I'm getting into my hobbies now. And we also recently took up scuba diving, which I got to recommend to everybody. What a riot that is, you know? Yeah. If you don't mind a sport that's really characterized by don't die at every minute. Don't, don't die. It's really cool. But don't, for, don't forget not to die. You know, no, it's not. That's, that's why I went into it. It's really not that bad. Um, it's really a lot safer than that, but. Uh, I've always, I've always wanted to do scuba diving. Um, well, I recommend it. It's really fun. And, and it's not because I'm, I haven't, it's not, I haven't, I can't talk right now. So we're going to cut all that out. Uh, but. The reason I haven't done it isn't because I'm afraid of the water or anything like that. I love swimming. We're very water friendly people. I just, you know, over in the area of Michigan, which I live, um, the lakes that are by us, I don't think are very, would be very fun to scuba in. So, you know, I keep thinking well, that maybe if I went out to Lake Michigan, that'd be more fun. But here's the thing. 
you're going to learn how to scuba dive in a pool. And I know this is important information for your listeners, so I'm going to go through it. Extremely. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to really live in any particular place to have a scuba diving teacher in a pool. And I'm sure there's one like within five miles of of your place. Secondly, yes, you have to travel to go scuba diving. Because not everybody's lucky enough to live, you know, in the Hawaiian Islands or, you know, uh, near the the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. So, yes, you're going to do some traveling. But, you know, that's not so bad either. Um, And you get to see some of those beautiful things in the world uh, underwater. So don't don't stop because you live in Michigan. I went to school in Michigan, by the way. Uh, And if I had stopped there, you know, it would definitely not have been as interesting a life get out, see the rest of the world. There you go. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about, about your book. Um, Now you wrote a, the book again. Uh, And what's, what's the title again? It's constant comedy, how I started comedy central and lost my sense of humor. And it's a memoir. It's a memoir. Yeah. That's what I thought. Um, I had that at the top of the page and I was just too lazy to scroll up. So I asked you, Uh, (laughs) we'll be real honest right there. No problem. Uh, (laughs) So let's tell the listeners a little bit what they can look forward to in the book and why they need to go snag a copy for themselves. And perhaps even what's your favorite part of the, of, of the book writing process? Well, uh, you know, you're asking me to do a commercial for my book, which I'm happy to do. Uh, I wrote a memoir. Again, it's not a history, but it is a story of how Comedy Central got started. Sure. Um, because I thought it was, you know, really the greatest adventure I had in my career. And it, There are lots of crazy, funny people in it, as you can imagine. And as I pointed out about the subtitle, it was hard. It was very difficult. And I wanted to make that clear to people. I think it also, why should people read it? Two reasons. One, it's funny. It is funny. It's not all funny. It's not like a comedy book. But there's lots of funny things that happen. And I, I, I make it funny in places. Um, but secondly, uh, for anybody who's interested in working in a corporation or, or a company, for that matter, or in the film and television business or the entertainment business, this is an unvarnished look at what it's like to be there. It's really, you know, the whole thing, the politics, people getting fired, the fun, the craziness, the good news, the bad news. And I, I honestly spent a lot of time, Tim, talking to students, film students, business school students about just that. And they, they all say the same thing, you know, like, wow, is it really like that? And the answer is yes, it was really like that. And you don't know, you can't tell it's really like that unless you do it or you read my book. Those are the two options. All right. That's fair enough. So, you know, in thinking about that, I, I like your approach, the fact that it's, you know, not a, a um, not a biography, but a memoir. I think that's a very important distinction uh, between the two. Uh, that because typically in biographies, I, I think that themes kind of kind of get glamorized a little bit to make things seem a little bit better than maybe than what they were. But I think in a memoir, it's a little bit more of a truth telling of what actually happened and how things are going down and and things like that. Yeah, let me tell you, Tim, in order to write memoir, and I found this out by taking a class first in writing memoir, and then I took a number of them, you have to turn yourself inside out. You can't write a memoir without telling, you know, important and very personal sometimes truths about yourself, not just about what happened, but more about how you feel. You know, how did I feel at the time? 
So if I were going to write this as an autobiography where everything was going great, I wouldn't have told the stories about how I was scared to death and how I was, you know, pummeled by Bridget in that meeting. And, 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 you know, I mean, those aren't the stories that get told by people who write histories. The stories that get told by people who write memoirs are those stories, the tough times. And I think that's why people read memoirs. No, I, I would agree with you. I think that's very, I think that's a very cool thing to do. Um, so where are people able to find your book? Well, it's um, available at Amazon and the other online booksellers. Also, you can get it in bookstores. It's in bookstores. And if you want to find out about that um, or other things about me, you can go to my website uh, where I have information about my book and where to buy it, some other writing. It's artbellwriter.com. Okay, cool. Excellent. We'll be sure to get those links and put those uh, in our description down below. And uh, another question for you. So we have a Facebook group and it's uh, the funny science fiction page and it was created basically to share memes with people. And so the funny thing, the funny usually comes from people combining this with this. And what are two sci-fi things that you enjoy that you think you could combine to create a comedy? I think science fiction in kids is a great, a great way to do comedy um, because, because I think that kids dealing with their parents in a sci-fi situation, like say a kid invented a time machine, right? And he's going back and forth in time. And he comes back and he tells his parents, you know, I just checked out myself in the future. And I'm, it turns out I'm like, I'm the leader of the free world. And the parents are like, would you just get back there and do your homework? You know, I mean, we don't want to hear this stuff. And, and just the crazy things that might, I mean, that's a circumstance that would, might be a great place to take off from. Mm, interesting. Um, but I think kids are generally good, a good place to start when you want comedy. I found a question in a past interview that you were a part of, but I think that it's, it's still a relevant question. And I think it's one that our followers would actually like to know. So with the, the entertainment industry, like everybody else, is trying to navigate these new waters and trying to figure out their norm during this completely unnormal time. So how do you think that the comedy business can and should reinvent itself? Well, it, it's a good question. And uh, I think most businesses, you're right, are going to reinvent themselves to a certain extent. Um, Stand-up comedy in particular is a, is a discipline that requires a relationship between the, the performer and the audience. And the big stopper to stand-up comedy has been this Zoom thing where you cannot get instant feedback from the audience. And that's the lifeblood of stand-up comedians. I mean, uh, so that, that really put a damper on the whole thing. I, I'm not going to suggest that the Zoom boom is going to, you know, persist so much in stand-up comedy. I don't think it will. Um, on the other hand, I think that comedy found other outlets online through the Zoom boom and other things, and TikTok, for example, mm -hmm. where suddenly, okay, if you got to be funny, we'll find ways to be funny on the internet, you know? And, and again, I think TikTok's a good example of that. Um, people are funny in their tweets and everything else. A friend of mine is fond of saying that there's comedy everywhere now. It's not just Comedy Central putting comedy up there. It's everybody's doing comedy. 
Um, and I think even I, I've seen uh, stand-up comedians not so much alter their act, but come up with a new act, you know, that's completely, that's not stand-up. It's a completely different approach to comedy on this, in this mode. So I think, I think that if there are going to be changes, there are, that's what is, what's going to happen. But I think the purest form of stand-up comedy is a guy or a gal, a brick wall, a mic, an audience, and a couple of drinks. And that is not going anywhere. You know, I think as, as things get better, those, all, all of that's going to come back. All right. So before we wrap up here, I have, I have one question for you that, oh, no. the, that the other two were not aware of, and I'm sneaking it in here just as, cause I'm curious. So if you could recommend one piece of science fiction, whether media or written literature to introduce somebody to science fiction, what would it be and why? You know, that's, that's, that's an easy question for me because we already went through this. I would do Ray Bradbury's Golden Apples, the song. You know that book, the collection of short stories? Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. The, the reason I, I recommend Ray Bradbury is because he wasn't only a great sci-fi writer, um, but he was also a great writer and his characters and the personalities uh, and the, the, the exploration of his characters in whatever situation they were in was so perfect and beautiful, you know, and uh, listen, we can think of the famous ones like um, Sound of Thunder, which I'm sure your audience is familiar with, where, um, you know, they go back to the past and uh, the hunters get to hunt a dinosaur, kill the dinosaur, but they can't step off the path because they can't disrupt anything. And of course, what happens is they step off the path and that causes the future to go completely ridiculously awry when they get back. And that it's just, you know, that's been done a million times in sci-fi. It's just been, you know, it's the butterfly effect. You know, it's just, it's been done over and over. It was probably done before him. It'll be done after him. He did it beautifully. He really did it. Just, he just nailed it is the way I got to say it. So yeah, I, I would and have recommended that to people when I, when I talk about sci-fi. All right. Very good. All right, so before we, we let you go here, Art, we do want to play a quick quiz game with you. It's okay. a, it's the... Uh, what if I, I lose? Oh, we're getting to that. Don't you worry. All right, so... There are always fun, consequences. It's a fun sequence, Kathleen. Get it right. All right, so... I was going to let you use your silly word. You sequence. It's a fun sequence. All right, so it's a five-question quiz. All the questions are multiple choice. So we'll try and make it somewhat easier on you. If you get three of them correct, we're going to send you one of these super cool I gave to the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund coffee mugs, which is loosely based upon uh, Star Trek and the Red Shirts. Um, and then if you get four questions right, we're going to send you that mug along with this book right here, Custodians of the Cosmos, which is uh, written by Drake Noun, the founder of our, our Facebook group, okay, uh, which is about a young man who wanted to join in uh, with Starfleet washed out couldn't hack it so he became a custodian on one of the starships to boldly clean up after those who boldly just went so now however if you get less than three questions correct so two questions one question uh we take a picture of you we make zero questions you you didn't mention zero well i was hoping for at least one (laughs) Uh, (laughs) there better be a softball question in that thing i hope so 
we're hoping so we'll find out uh it's but, not uh, it's nick's fault it's all nick's fault uh we'll blame nick we're happy with that but uh we'll take a picture of you and put a put a make a meme out of you and put it on our facebook group okay oh, with great. that it's, <laughs> look there's only a hundred oh, my, my lawyer's just calling in let me just take this <laughs> there's only 122,000 members so not very many people will see it okay so and you'll be <laughs> that's in a relief right good company with dan Pavenmeyer. yeah the creator of phineas and ferb he got memed oh really he did yeah. I'm going to get there's memed. a couple others. I don't remember. Who Wait a second. Can I just world. retire now and say meme me because like <laughs> <laughs> why waste everybody's time here today with five questions? I don't know the answer to. OK, go ahead. Yeah, you might. You might be surprised. These are all based on 1950s sci fi. OK, you have a fighting chance, sir. I think. <laughs> that, and if true. not, blame Nick. And again, okay. if it doesn't, if, okay. if, uh, if you suck at it, just blame Nick. We're OK with it. All okay. right, Nick, lead us in. It's actually me first. Oh, Kathleen, you're that's right. <laughs> Kathleen, please get started with the quiz. <laughs> All right. Question one. Which movie does this tagline belong to? A Titanic beauty spreads a macabre wave of horror. Attack of the 50-foot woman, teenagers from outer space, or the amazing colossal man? Attack of the 50-foot woman. Correct. And that might be your softball one. question. Yes. <laughs> I'm so happy. Can I go tell my wife? Hold on. Right, I got one go ready. Ahead. The idea of a doomsday machine was reused in a 1966 Star Trek episode. What movie inspired it? Was it Gog, Kronos, or Spaceways? See, that's interesting. I was, I, I was going to say Dr. Strangelove. But that's not one of the choices. Give me the choices again. Gog, Kronos, and Spaceways. I'm guessing Kronos. You are correct. Well, two for two. Yes. <laughs> Wait a second. What year was Kronos? Um, Nick, what year was Kronos? <laughs> I don't know. I just pulled it off. Pulled the quiz off the internet. <laughs> oh, you believe that crap on the internet? <laughs> If it was on the internet, it must be true. Abraham Lincoln told him so. If it's after 1960 when Dr. Strangelove was written, you're up up the creek, but it was 1957. (laughs) Oh, phew. All right. So Strangelove stole it from that. Okay. Good. All right. Question three Which was the first sci fi space adventure to be made after World War II? The Thing, Destination Moon, or Rocketship XM? Rocket ship XM. Correct. Three for three. You got a coffee mug. I'm in. The, I'm in the money now. <laughs> right. Out of mainland money. I you are in the money land. round. Okay. In what category did 1953's War, The War of the Worlds win an Academy Award? Was it Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, or Best Visual Effects? I'll go with visual effects because it's obvious, but it's probably not that. It is correct. Remind me to never go to a now pool. I'm nervous. You. <laughs> <laughs> we have a shark in our midst. All right. And I love that question... movie, by the way. That was a great movie and a great book. Mm-hmm. Question number five. 
Which film is a loose retelling of Shakespeare's The Tempest, War of the Worlds, Forbidden Planet, or The Day the Earth Stood Still? Forbidden Planet. Correct. You just aced this quiz. Right. You went five so for five. Apparently, you know, I, I look for off. one good thing to happen to me, to me every day. <laughs> And it's not even like three o'clock. You did it. And you I got your it. good thing. All right, Nick, All right. way to give him five so softballs. Proud. All right. I'm going to cry. Hold on. <laughs> Underestimated him. All right. So, uh, Art, you've won yourself yes. a coffee mug. Okay. And, and a book. you've won yourself a book. And we'll make sure that Drayton uh, puts some calligraphy in the front of it for you. Okay. Thank you. That would be great. Um, but yeah. So, uh, and, and after we say goodbye to everybody, don't hang up right away. We want to make sure that we get your, your shipping information. We really do want to send you those. Okay. Okay. Can I plug one more thing? Yeah, oh, absolutely. absolutely. My friend Vinny Favalli uh, and I, who were there at the beginning of Comedy Channel, decided to do a podcast in honor of the 30th anniversary. It's called The Constant Comedy Podcast. And we're talking to people from way back at the beginning. It's been so much fun. We awesome. did talk to Kevin Murphy who plays Tom Servo and has for 30 years uh, on Mystery Science Theater 3000, one of the best conversations we had. I thought your, your, your uh, audience might be interested in that. It was really a lot of fun. Absolutely. That's great. They can uh, find that we... on my website or, you know, the, wherever you get your podcast. What, what was the name of it again? Constant Comedy? The Constant Comedy Podcast with Art Bell and Vinny Favalli. Perfect. All right. We'll make sure that... Uh... Uh, we get people to, to know about that. Nick, hey. how are they going to know about that? Because I'm stepping all over Nick's lines today. <laughs> <laughs> and Kathleen's. It's where all right. Would, where would people go to? Um, I know you. He had already mentioned them, but can this. we mention them again so that we don't lose? <laughs> We're going to fix all this in post because I am just tripping Jeez, over I all hope my so. shoelaces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I'm, you should keep it. Come on. This is behind the scenes kind of stuff. The bloopers. <laughs> this will be in our blooper reel for sure. <laughs> How did Tim screw us up this day? Well, <laughs> here's the reel. I don't know. We've got some pretty good bloopers. We could put out a funny science fiction blooper reel. Very easy. I'm, I'm, I'm buying. <laughs> um, yes, you can you can find my podcast by either going to my website, artbellwriter.com, and going to the podcast tab, or to iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. Awesome. Right. Thanks. And we are going to make sure that we put your website in our description in Thank addition you. to the other things that you mentioned earlier when Tim Beautiful. messed us all up again. <laughs> See, that's how it's supposed to go right it. there. Okay. Uh, all I right. So kids, we want to remind you that subscribing is the single most important thing that you can do to ensure that we get uh, a continuation of amazing guests like Art Bell and funny moments for you to listen to when I screw things up. But... <laughs> Please subscribe. It's going to help our show more than you're ever going to know. And of course, be sure to check out Art's book, uh, Constant Comedy, his story about going into uh, starting Comedy Central. And, and then also you're going to want to check out his podcast, The Constant Comedy Podcast. Uh, that sounds like it's going to be a hoot and he's got some great guests coming in over there. So check out what they're doing over there. Now, if you're not happy with the content of our videos, and trust me, we've given you plenty of reason today for you to not be happy. <laughs> all you have to do is submit in duplicate form, of course, and the head of our complaint department, funny man Richard Pryor, and although I can't repeat what he's going to say about your complaint and why you're complaining about it, I assure you that it was going to be both funny 
and insulting, yet extremely effective in another way. He'll get it taken care of. Thanks again, Art. Thank Goodbye, you everyone, and thank you for watching. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for watching. Our show is brought to you by our charity sponsor, Blue Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund, which supports the Wish Upon a Teen Foundation that helps out sick kids when they need it most. And just imagine the comfort that you'll give redshirt crewman number 56. He'll know that when he puts on the red shirt and goes on stage going into anaphylaxis, uh, can't say that word. <laughs> He'll know that when he puts on the red shirt and goes on stage going into anaphylactic shock from the tomatoes nine minutes after the second set, that he didn't leave his family destitute and without hope because the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund has his back and the tomato stained combat. On behalf of the rest of the hosts of Funny Science Fiction, we'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to be a guest on one of our future episodes, please contact us by means of our Facebook group, Funny Science Fiction. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram using the handle at funny sci-fi, or you can go to DraytonAllen.com and click the contact me link at the bottom of the page. Thanks again. Hope you enjoyed the episode. <laughs>